today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We will be looking at part 2 of Stephen's speech today in Acts chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 17 and uh, making our way all the way today through verse 43. So we're covering a large portion of Scripture today, but in case you haven't noticed, uh, this is a long sermon, long speech that Stephen delivers here in Acts chapter 7. And so uh, kind of by necessity, we're taking it sort of a a piece at a time, though this is kind of a big piece today, but hopefully you'll be able to bear with me as we uh, make our way through this entire text that we have before us today. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 7, verse 17 and following. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and a flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. 
And as for this Moses, who led us out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you today asking as children come to a father for help, for your aid, for your instruction today. Lord, we have before us a passage that is long and might seem confusing to us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help and your wisdom that you would instruct us and and lead us by the Holy Spirit into the truth of what you have revealed to us by your servant Luke and the words spoken by Stephen. Lord, I pray today that we might benefit, that we might continue to see the, the thrust of the argument of this great preacher and deacon Stephen. And Lord, that we might see today that you are the one who has accomplished all these things and has been working for your people from that moment in, the, in, the, in Egypt even to today. And so, Lord, we come to you as that God and ask for your help and your guidance today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's uh, something that I think to be pretty true that for most families, for most people, we can think of someone in our family, whether it be a grandfather, whether it be a great-grandfather, an uncle, someone in our lineage who is considered to be a sort of patriarch or perhaps a, a grandmother or a woman, someone considered to be a matriarch of the family, someone who long after they have passed, when their memory is recalled, that it brings up all kinds of great memories and, and stories and, and almost a sort of awe and and reverence surrounding the discussion of that person. So that though they were human, though they had their flaws, though they had their faults, when they come up in our conversations, oftentimes it's hard to recall any of those. We recall simply the, the good things, the, the good memories, the qualities that they had that made them so loved and so desired to be around. I know for, for myself and for my family, uh, one of those kinds of people would be my grandfather, and uh, grandfather is never a word we would have used for him. We always called him Pepal, uh, a, a term that whenever I was a teenager felt really weird to say around my friends. But now that I'm an adult, uh, I think it's perfectly appropriate to recall my, my Pepal or Pap as we used to call him and think about his memory. He was a guy who, who when we talk about him in our family, there is hardly ever anything negative spoken about him. There's stories of joy. Uh, of things that he did, things that he said, things that he loved. And we recall these kinds of sweet memories. In fact, for a time, I even considered writing uh, some sort of short book uh, about my grandfather, pulling stories from my aunts and uncles and other friends and and relatives, uh, because my grandfather's life was just so fascinating, so interesting. And one of the most amazing things about him, I'll just give you a little taste, uh, was that my grandfather was one of the most content men I've ever met in my life. 
He never had great riches. He never had wealth. Uh, he had an old farmhouse, a woman whom he loved and, and loved him, and, and kids that he doted on and, and poured his love out into. And, uh, and my grandfather, my papa, he loved Jesus. And all of those things speak to just a, a little bit of who my grandfather was. And, and when we get together as family, my, aunt, my brothers, my sisters, my aunts, uncles, when we come together, it's often a, a great and joyful and, and pleasant time when we bring up these memories about Papal, about who he was and, and what he did, and, and sort of recall to our minds this patriarch of the family. That is true of almost every family, of, of every human being. I would argue that that is even to a deeper and greater extent true for the Jewish people when they recall Moses. You'll notice as we, as we read our text today that it is largely dealing with this main figure, this character, Moses. As, as Stephen is preaching, you remember from last week, he talked about a couple different characters. We looked at the life of, of Abraham, and we looked at the life of Joseph, and we looked and, and saw how he was attempting to refute the arguments made by the, the false witnesses that were brought against him, and he did so by pointing to these men and their lives. And how Christ has now become the fulfillment of what they were promised and what they longed for. And so now today, Stephen is bringing up, recalling to mind, this great figure, Moses. The one who these Jews he was speaking to considered to be of utmost reverence and honor. Probably more than any other figure in the Old Testament or in their history. They considered Moses to be of greatest esteem because it was through Moses that the people were led out of Egypt. It was through Moses that the Red Sea was parted and the people were saved from the Egyptian captors. It was through Moses that the law was given. Indeed, for these Jews, Moses was supreme in their lineage of all men. That's why they basically considered it blasphemous and such a great offense that Stephen might have possibly spoken ill of Moses. You remember from, from last week that this was one of the charges that they brought against him, that he spoke against Moses. And last week, as he was refuting, this was one of the things that he, was, that he is refuting. Last week, he dealt largely with the temple. One of the other accusations that was brought against him, if you recall, if you remember, was that he was speaking ill of the temple, that, that he was blaspheming the temple, indeed saying that this Jesus of Nazareth claimed that he was going to destroy the temple. And for the Jews, you recall, the temple is what they considered to be the holy place where the presence of God is exclusively found. That without, temple, without the temple, God is not with his people. That was essentially the view that the Jews had kind of developed through their history and that Stephen was now speaking against. And he did so, did so quite well last week, if you recall. This week, he's now going to begin to deal with this other accusation that he has blasphemed against Moses, that he's spoken against Moses and the law. And for the next 26 verses, Stephen turns his attention in this sermon to this most beloved character, this man named Moses, which really is a very bold and, if you think about it, kind of risky thing to do in this given audience. Because if there was ever an audience that knew the story of Moses, 
and that you had better get it right if you're going to talk about him, it was this audience. It was the Jewish council. It was the Sanhedrin, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes that he now stood before. It'd be like going to Comic-Con to speak and bringing up like Batman. You better believe the people there are going to be able to check your facts about what you say about Batman. And if you get it wrong, you could very well have a riot on your hands, right? Same thing is true here. As Stephen is now bringing Moses up in this conversation, these people's ears have gone up like this. Moses, okay, you're talking about our guy now. Moses is the man. Moses is the one we love. Moses is the one whom we honor. What are you about to say about this guy, Moses? And indeed, he holds his own. Stephen proves that he knows his stuff, that he knows the scriptures, and that he knows his history. Because nothing that he says in any of this story is refuted. None of it do they raise their hand and object. Because it, indeed, it's all true. In this section of Stephen's speech, what he's going to do, he's going to do two things. He's going to refute and debunk the claim that he somehow despised or denigrated Moses. He's going to refute that, as we talked about last week. He has dual purposes here. He's not just standing before these people to sort of defend himself and what he said. But his other purpose is to point out their flaws, their sin, their idolatry. And so what he's going to do as well is as demonstrate that he indeed does not despise or think ill of Moses, but he's also going to demonstrate that Moses serves for us as a type and as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You remember last week that although we uh, are taking this sermon in sections, there is a main idea that Stephen is getting to. There is a main point that he is driving towards that he's going to bring home at a certain point in this speech, sort of climax. And I think as we did last week, it will serve us well to set our minds on exactly where it is that he's going before we get there to, to keep us on track as we study this portion of his sermon. It's found in verses 51 through 53. This is the point that he's getting to, where he concludes this sermon, at least as best as he has an opportunity, in 51 and through 53, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the ultimate point that Stephen is getting to. The ultimate point we could say is Christ. As he is preaching through the Old Testament, we said last week, he is preaching Christ from the Old Testament. He's getting there. He's building his argument. We begin to see it shaping, taking shape. He's going to drive it home later on in his sermon, which we will get to next week. But I want us to stay on track here and recognize that this is what he's doing that he's setting the stage, that he's building this argument that Moses and all that we hold dear in relation to Moses is intended, as we read the Old Testament, to point us to Christ. It's as Martin Luther said, the Old Testament is indeed the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. And that's how we must interpret and must read the Old Testament. We must read it and interpret it in light of Christ, just as Stephen does. And this is where he's going. 
And he gets there through the account of Moses here today. The life of Moses can really be seen in three sections, three 40-year increments is how we see it sort of broken down in the text. That's basically how Stephen takes it and breaks it down in his speech as well. And so this morning, that's how we're going to look at this story of Moses as Stephen lays it out, especially looking at the transitional moments in these 40-year increments. And the first thing that we're going to look at and going to notice is we're going to look at Moses in Egypt. This is the first place that we find Moses in our story. And there are two particular parts of this section discussing Moses in Egypt. This is found in verses 17 through verse 29. One of the first things that we see Stephen pointing out here in this portion, we see him discussing his birth and his upbringing. This is the first thing that he begins to talk to us about. The scriptures tell us that Moses was beautiful in God's sight when he was born. This is an interesting phrase that that the Bible uses, that that the Lord looked at Moses and saw that he was beautiful, and it could be misunderstood. Indeed, what is not being said here by the scriptures is that the Lord somehow conducted some sort of like cutest baby contest and looked at all the babies across the the people of Israel and was like, this one is the most beautiful. His name's Moses. Therefore, I'm going to choose him to be my redeemer, my savior of the people. Indeed, that's not what happened. The Lord didn't look at Moses and just see that he was physically or aesthetically pleasing to the eye. But rather, it's kind of the opposite way. Rather than seeing that he was beautiful and therefore choosing him for this task, the Lord looks at Moses, whom he has chosen for this task, and therefore sees that he is beautiful. He's beautiful because he's been chosen by God and is going to be used in this way. The Lord sees Moses and knows the task that he has prepared for him to be an integral part of the redemption story of God's people. Moses was chosen by God to accomplish this task that he had ordained in order to redeem his people from the land of Egypt. And again, as as throughout all the Bible, we see at work here again the sovereignty of God in redemption. That God looked and declared This is how I'm going to save my people. Indeed, it's how he promised Abraham he was going to save his people. You remember last week, he told Abraham that the people are going to sojourn. They're going to be strangers in a land. They're going to be held captive for 400 years. But there was a but there, right? But I'm going to bring them out and into the land in which I have promised them. And so what we see now is the Lord decreeing willing sovereignly to fulfill the promises that he had made and to do so through Moses. But beyond his being chosen by God for this purpose, Stephen also points out the fact that he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and in Pharaoh's house. After spending only three months with his family, Moses was then taken and raised in in the Pharaoh's house. He points this out. And he emphasizes this in order to sort of instruct the Israelites that he's speaking to, the Jews that Stephen is speaking to, and sort of set the record straight. Why? Because for the Jewish people, their identity was rooted in their ethnicity, in their ethnicity, in their Jewishness. Stephen has just pointed out something that they know to be true, 
And that is that as the text says, Moses, their great hero, was instructed and brought up in the wisdom of Egypt. He was brought up in the land and under the instruction of the Egyptians, this pagan people in this pagan land. This would have been a fact that was very off-putting to them. One that they would have much rather just forgotten about. The fact that the great wisdom of Moses was largely solidified by his first 40 years under Egyptian teaching. And so again, even with this point, Stephen is chipping away at some more of the idolatry that is infiltrated and saturated the Jewish people. In this case, the fact that their, their heritage, their salvation, their special standing before God was so rooted in their ethnic identity. And he's basically saying, Moses was basically an Egyptian, right? He was brought up in an Egyptian home with Egyptian customs, with Egyptian teaching. And yet, this is the place that God had him and ordained that he would from there save God's people. The next detail that he emphasizes here, Stephen, about the, the life of Moses was that in this time here in Egypt, indeed at the end of this transitional period, Moses killed this Egyptian. If you're unfamiliar with the story, as the, the author excuse me, as Stephen has laid it out here in verse 23 through 25, what we see is this instance where, where Moses came down and he came to visit his people. The Lord laid it on his heart to go and see his people. And he goes and, and he sees God's people, one of his brothers being abused. And indeed, the, the, the Greek here would imply that he was likely going to be killed. It was not just that this, this Egyptian was being a bully, was picking on him, was making fun of him or mocking him. The idea being portrayed here is that this Hebrew man's life was in danger. And so Moses intercedes. And indeed, I know it's, it's sort of portrayed in, in The Prince of Egypt. If you've seen that movie, it's portrayed as though, uh, as though it was just this, this terrible, wicked, sinful thing that Moses did. And, and certainly we, we would say there was likely a, a great, there was sin in Moses' heart when he did this. But at the same time, this was an act that was justified, an act to save one of his brothers from this evildoer, from this one who was persecuting him and was about to kill him. And Moses seems to think that they would have been grateful, that they would have seen this act that he did as an example of the fact that he was their redeemer, that he was going to lead them out of the land. It's implied in the text that he at least knew this to some extent. It says in verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But indeed, they did not. They didn't understand that at all. Rather, he comes back, sees his own brothers fighting, his, Egypt, or his, excuse me, his Israelite brothers arguing, and what do they say? Who made you ruler and judge over us? Recall back to what we said last week. I know I'm having you recall back to last week a lot. And if you weren't here last week, I apologize. But let me tell you what we saw last week. In the story of Joseph last week, we were brought and, and reminded of the fact that Joseph's brothers came two times to see him, didn't they? The first time Joseph's brothers came when they were looking for food, when they were searching, they came to Egypt and they stood before their brother. They didn't realize it was their brother, did they? 
They didn't recognize him as their brother the first time they came to Egypt. Similarly here, what we see is that the first interaction that we have recorded between the people and Moses is that they did not recognize him. They did not accept him as their savior, as their deliverer, the one whom God had chosen to redeem his people. And do you remember what we said about Joseph last week? It points us to Christ. For indeed, Christ has come one time. And as Stephen is telling the Jews here, you missed it. You didn't recognize your Redeemer, your Messiah, the one who was, who was promised to you and who came to save you. You missed it. You didn't recognize him. Same with Joseph. When his brothers came, they didn't recognize him. Joseph, who served as a type of the one to come. And now again, Moses, in this first interaction, this first time that he interacts with these Hebrew people, they don't recognize him. And indeed, they reject him as their leader. What Stephen is doing is that he's drawing a line connecting from Joseph to Moses and eventually to Jesus. And that's what he's intending for us to see here. This line that he is drawing from one to the next and ultimately to Christ. Pointing to, again, the reality that all of these things are basically one giant roadmap and arrow pointing to this man, Jesus. Then we get to the next section, and that is Moses and Midian in verses 30 through 34. Stephen then takes his listeners to the end of the next section, the next 40 years of Moses' life when he was in Midian. And he brings to our minds and to the minds of his listeners this well-known and beloved moment from their history, from the history of God's people in verse 30 through 33. He says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice, the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then we have these words. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Here we see this amazing moment and one that that the Jews would have loved to recall and to hear of how God spoke to this man Moses out of the bush. And even in this, we see a further repudiation. Once again, one more jab, one more hit against the idea that the temple is God's singular dwelling place, the singular exclusive place where his presence is found. In fact, verse 33 tells us, that he was told to take off his shoes for the place where he was standing was what? Holy ground. It was holy ground. Why? Not because it was the temple mount, not because the tabernacle was loaded, located there, but because Christ, but because God's presence was there. You see, it's the presence of God that makes a place holy. It has nothing to do with any specific structure or any specific place. It is the presence of God that makes a place holy. And then we have verse 34. And I love verse 34. Verse 34, Stephen recalls what 
God declared and, and told Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, and I will send you to Egypt. What a great encouragement this passage is to God's people, both in this time that the Lord said this, but even today, to hear that God was faithful to his people, that he never forgot them. 400 years they lived in this place, and the Lord never forgot them. And I, I even want to go back and read what Jesus, or excuse me, what God actually said before he spoke to Moses in the bush. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, Moses recalls for us what the Lord declared. He says in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Church family, if nothing else, then I think we we could take this passage alone today and leave this place encouraged. That God heard the cries of his people. He heard the groaning of his people. And every single time, as God always has, he loved his people. And he had not forgotten them. And indeed, he was for his people. And just as he had promised, he was going to remain faithful to his covenant. This is a great passage that points us to the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, a faithfulness that we can rely on today. Because just as he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and promised all of these things to his people, God has made a covenant to redeem us. He has made a covenant that this earth, this life that we now live is not the end, but that there is coming a day for us though we struggle, though we toil, though we groan and we cry, that God is going to redeem us even from this earthly life, even from this struggle. And that redemption has already begun for us. It has already been started in Christ Jesus. And we can trust and have confidence that our redemption will be completed in Christ Jesus. The problem, though, with many of the Jews and the Jewish council at this time. And the reason why they missed this and they didn't apply this to Christ was because they were looking at the wrong enemy. You see, they looked at the story of deliverance of the people out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery. And they looked at the promise of one who was going to come who was greater than Moses and they were looking for someone who was going to come and free them from an earthly bondage, from earthly bondage to Rome, to their captors, to their earthly enemies. Indeed, they were focused in looking at the wrong enemy. Christ came to deliver his people, but not from an earthly bondage, as the Jews were hoping for, looking for. This, this Jewish council was set that he was going to do. But he came to redeem us and rescue us from an enemy that's far worse, namely that of sin. 
He has rescued us from sin, from the curse that sin brings. More than that, he has rescued us from the wrath of God that we deserve. A point that's so often lost in the atonement. That when Christ atoned for our sins, when he took the punishment that we deserve, he was not paying some ransom to the devil to buy us from him who was our owner. He was paying the price that was due us, but that price was because the wrath of God was upon us. It's because we have sinned against a holy God. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, each and every human that has been born has been born into sin, under the curse, and under God's wrath. Christ came to deliver us, to deliver us from that very wrath of God that we so deserve. But that's not the problem that the Jews were looking to be solved. They were looking at an earthly problem to be solved, which is not what Christ came to do. And so they missed it. Just as their fathers had missed Moses, had missed the point initially that he was their deliverer, so these Jews, as Stephen is pointing out, missed their deliverer. And then finally, point number three, we turn now to Moses in the wilderness, this last 40-year section of Moses' life. In verse 35 through 43, this Moses was chosen by God, chosen to be the rescuer of God's people. And Stephen makes that point emphatically in verses 35 through 38. Look at what he says. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Notice the use of the words, this. That Stephen says, this Moses, this man, this is Moses. The first thing you might notice about this, why he's speaking in this way, is that he's speaking in this way to counter and sort of speak in opposition to what his false witnesses had brought against him. Look back in chapter 6, verse 14. One of the accusations that were brought against him. In chapter 6, verse 14, here's what one of the charges is. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You notice the way they use the emphatic, this Jesus. Now Stephen says, in a similar way, this Moses. I think even more significant than that is the parallel that we see between the words that Stephen spoke here and the words that Peter says in Acts chapter 2 when he gives his sermon at Pentecost. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. In verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, he says in verse 32, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
And in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Why did Stephen speak in the way that he did? Saying, this Moses, this man, this is the Moses? He did so to make evidently and emphatically clear the connection that he was making between Moses, the deliverer of God's people from Egypt, and Jesus, the deliverer of God's people from God's wrath, from their sin, from the curse. Stephen has clearly shown that he holds both Moses and the law in high regard, and that cannot be disputed. He knew the history of Moses as well as any of them. He knew what the Bible said about their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Of Moses, he says, he received living oracles to give to us in verse 38. But he then goes on in verse 39 and says, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they returned to Egypt. And indeed, that's what they did, didn't they? Recall back to the, to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, when they were in wandering, and how they rejected Moses as he had gone up onto the mountain to receive the law. And what did they do? They said, hey, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. Moses, make an idol for us. We're already done with him. Who cares about him? Make for us an idol. And indeed, that's what they do. And in their hearts returned back to Egypt. Not once, but over and over again. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, as they are in the wilderness, and as they are being, being led by the Lord, as they are feasting on the manna from heaven that the Lord was providing for them, here's what Numbers chapter 11 says in verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again. Again, notice they've been doing this a lot. And said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. These people were the biggest bunch of complainers that you will ever hear about or ever read about in your whole life. In fact, of all that God did through his servant Moses for these people, not once throughout this story do you see the people being described as gracious or thankful for what the Lord was doing. But over and over again, they're bitter, they're grumbling, they're complaining. And they rejected Moses and his leadership over and over again. They literally were in the wilderness eating miraculous food that God was just providing for them that they woke up every morning and look, there's this basically stuff to make cakes out in our yard. And what did they say? All we have is this manna to look at. We could say, all we have to look at is this great example of God's preservation of us and his kindness toward us and his care for us. But that wasn't enough. They complained, they moaned, they grumbled, and they rejected the leader that God had given them in Moses. 
the spirit of rejection and idolatry. It did not end in the wilderness. It did not end at the time of the calf when they rejected Moses then, but it continued throughout the life of the nation. That's why Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5 in verses 42 through 43, a prophecy which came about 900 years after the whole golden calf incident. It might seem strange to think, well, why did he quote Amos here? This is an instance in which the Lord is judging them for, for something else, this other moment of rejection where they turn to other gods. And Stephen's point is exactly that, that these people were habitual idolaters and rejectors of God. They were constantly turning from the Lord, rejecting his, his chosen leader, and turning back in their hearts to Israel. In the same way that their fathers were guilty of idolatry, as they built the calf and rejected the chosen prophet from God, the point that Stephen is making is that his hearers, as he is preaching this sermon, are also guilty of idolatry. As they have rejected Jesus, God's chosen Messiah, and they have clung to and idolized the temple and the law and their ethnicity and all these things that mean nothing apart from Christ. Stephen is telling these Jewish leaders they are just like their fathers. That's what he tells them at the very end. That's the point we've already made. We're going to see again next week. He says that they are just like their fathers who rejected Moses. Except now they reject the Messiah that Moses prophesied about. And rather are clinging to Moses. They have rejected the substance for the shadow. And that's a part of the tragic irony of all of this. In their minds, they might think that they have, in a sense, remedied their father's error, their, their forefather's rejection of Moses. They might say, well, yes, that was so wrong of them, the way they rejected the leader that God had appointed them. Not us, though. We accept Moses. We love Moses. And we, we say what they did was bad, and now we're remedying it. And we just love Moses so much. He is of supreme importance to us. And in doing so, in clinging to Moses, they have idolized him, they have idolized the law, they've idolized the temple, and they are, in that sense, living out the same spirit of rejection of God's Redeemer. By clinging to Moses, they are rejecting Christ. And that's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be because as, as one guy, his name's uh, Dr. Walter Martin, he's since past, but he was a, a pretty well-known evangelist. He dealt a lot with sharing the gospel with various cults and other religions. And, and he said one time, I think this was a, a great quote. He said, when you evangelize to someone, when you preach the gospel, he said, you give them Jesus each and every time. But if they reject Jesus, then you leave them with Moses. You leave them with the law because that is where they stand. Because apart from Christ, what are we judged according to? We're judged according to how well we have lived up to the law. How well we have lived up to what God gave through Moses. And let me ask you this question. 
What is the standard of obedience to the law of Moses required for righteousness? Perfection. Complete obedience to the law. Never missing or screwing up on one iota, one jot, one tittle of the law. And we all know how well that goes for anyone. Romans 3 makes it clear. There's none who is righteous. No, not even one. We could never live up to the law. Therefore, to cling to Moses at the expense of Christ is to cling to that which will absolutely crush us on judgment day. There is no hope to be found by clinging to the law of Moses. There is only hope to be found in clinging to Christ. And that's the whole point of, of the story of Moses. It's not to, to draw us into the law to try and earn our salvation. It's to expose us to the reality that we could never live up to the law and point us to the one who was coming that he prophesied about who would truly redeem God's people in a far greater sense than what he had done. And that is where we now stand today. We stand now in this time when Christ has come, he has died on the cross for his people, and the offer of salvation has been made available to us. Not the offer that we can live good enough and obey the law, but the offer that Christ has come and obeyed the law of Moses perfectly and has died on the cross to redeem us, to take the punishment that we deserve and take God's wrath, and has now granted to us eternal life all who trust in him by faith. This is the gospel message that Stephen is driving to. But as we know, what does he have to do first? He has to expose their guilt. He has to expose to them the judgment that they are under. And as we know is the case, that judgment ultimately was too much for them to bear and they are going to kill him before the end. We ought to see and understand that Moses was indeed a type. He was a foreshadow pointing to the coming Christ and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law delivered through Moses. Because the alternative is to be left with Moses and be judged according to that law and how well we can live up to it. And let me just plead with you, church family, do not rely on your good morals, your obedience to the law for your salvation. It's not enough. It's not enough. But rather, realize your fallenness, realize your guilt, and look to the one who has accomplished it for us, who obeyed the law perfectly and is willing to grant you that perfect obedience so that we can stand before God on judgment day righteous. Let's pray.